0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The state has a new tool to help fight COVID-19, but you have to opt in to use it. We'll talk with the head of Colorado's containment and testing team about how it works. Then we'll meet another new American who became a citizen just recently after living as an undocumented immigrant since she was a baby. She'll vote
1: for the first time. It's always like I grew up in a separate community from those who were citizens, and now just being able to participate in voting is like a huge deal to me.
0: We'll also take a look at how the Affordable Care Act may shape the outcome of the U.S. Senate race in Colorado. And a Halloween treat, Terror at 5280, a collection of scary stories rooted in Colorado lore.
2: The majority of CPR's membership base gives monthly. Thank you to our Evergreen members for making support for Colorado Public Radio an ongoing priority in your budget. Your monthly donation is CPR's most reliable source of revenue, and it's put to work each and every day directly serving communities across our great state. This has been a year filled with unexpected change. As a member, you ensure that free access to news, information, and music remains unchanged. Thank you.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations continue to rise across the state. But this week, after a month-long delay, the Colorado Department of Health launched a new tool to help fight the virus. CDPHE's Sarah Thunberg leads Colorado's containment and testing team. Thanks for joining us, Sarah.
2: Thanks for having me. First off, What is this new tool and walk us through how it works? Absolutely. So, exposure notifications is an opt in mobile phone service. When two people have have activated exposure notifications on their smartphones and then come in close proximity to one another, their phones exchange these random tokens that log the close interaction for up to 14 days. Then, if one of those two people tests positive for COVID, after that encounter, and they choose to enable the notification service, the other person will receive an alert that they might have been exposed to COVID-19, and they're given instructions about how to get tested, how to quarantine safely, and how to proceed to protect themselves and their families and
0: friends. So to be clear, if someone finds out that they have COVID-19, they're supposed to self-report using the system. The place where they're testing is not going to do that reporting for them, right?
2: Correct. It's completely opt-in. There are actually three phases of opting into the service, enabling the service, um, deciding to ask for a text message to enable the uh, notification, and then when you get that text message, actually enabling it from there as well. And then if someone
0: gets the notification that they've been exposed to COVID-19, you mentioned several things that they might need to do. How do you, I, I suppose, because these are all randomized, you don't know the nature of the exposure, just that you've been near someone with it. So what are, is the state asking people to do?
2: Correct. So the state is asking that everybody who receives an exposure notification alert get tested. Additionally, we ask that they stay quarantined until they get the results of that test. We ask that they be in communication with their primary care physician. And if they need additional information, we link them through that exposure notification alert to the website, the CDPHE website, which has all the information we know about COVID. So the
0: system, it's only as good as the people participating. Are you concerned that people might falsely report being sick on accident or even in order to sow fear or confusion?
2: we are not because it's actually not possible. We had a concern about that and so we built a system by which that isn't possible. The only way to receive the notification, it's a a one-time notification possibility. It comes through a text message, you have a link, you can then say, yes, I want to notify those who I might have crossed paths with that comes from public health officials and it is tied to a test result. So you can't, unless you test positive, actually get that ability to uh, wreak havoc or falsely notify anybody. It's not actually possible.
0: Gotcha, that's good to know. I I understand that the state did not pay any money to develop this service, so how was it developed?
2: So Google and Apple collaborated to build the exposure notification system and make it available to public health agencies in states like ours. So engineers across the two companies worked together. Um, they worked with us and privacy experts, public health experts, computer and technology leaders and government leaders all over the U.S. and the world to really get input and guidance and make sure that this is a technology that would work for us. Um, Colorado, we watched, we waited, we worked with them, and we made sure it really met the needs we have in Colorado.
0: And are these systems tried and tested
2: by scientists? They are. So it's based on technology that's been deployed across the world, as well as, as I said, has been developed really in close collaboration with public health officials, government leaders, oh, excuse me, privacy experts, um, and really validated and tested Let's talk
0: about those privacy concerns because when Governor Polis initially announced the rollout of exposure notifications, there was concern that it would lead to further privacy issues with big tech companies. What is the state doing to protect people?
2: This was very concerning and, and the number one for priority for our team as we evaluated exposure notifications. and as we decided to launch at this point, privacy was at the forefront. So because the technology is so focused on privacy, there's very little data exchanged. It uses Bluetooth technology and the exchange of these anonymous tokens, which are random strings of letters and numbers. There's no personally identifiable information. It doesn't use GPS, so it doesn't track or know your location, doesn't know your name, your phone number, your IP address. Truly, the only thing that is exchanged is these random strings of letters and numbers.
0: So to be clear, during this rollout, people are getting a notification on their phone asking them if they want to sign up for the service since it's an opt-in system. Is there anyone in the health department that they're, rather, is there anyone that the health department is targeting
2: to get them to participate? We really want all iPhone and Android users to use it. The more people who enable the service, the better. But we also know that there are people in our community who are getting COVID at a disproportionate um, clip, really. Those are our frontline workers. Those are individuals of color, individuals who identify as Hispanic or Latinx. Um, We really want to ensure that they can enable this service and they get the additional benefit from it. So again, everybody should enable the service, but we're working very hard um, with uh, individual communities doing a lot of community listening, community collaboration to get this as another layer of our containment strategy for the whole community.
0: And so you're hoping that communities most affected by COVID opt into the system, but we should say that technology is expensive and software development can be culturally insensitive. How does the state intend to make sure that non-English speaking people of color, elderly folks, low-income workers get access to exposure notification?
2: So we've taken a multi-pronged strategy recognizing that one, the service is currently available in Spanish and English, and we'll roll it out in six additional languages over the next couple of weeks. We've worked super hard to make the service really simple to enable, so on an iPhone you enable it through your settings, just like you would turn on Wi-Fi or airplane mode, and on an Android you have to download an app. But we've tried to make it super, super simple, just a few quick steps, and we've also created videos, troubleshooting guidance, and other things like that at our websites, addyourphone.com and Utiliza tu teléfono dot com to help people walk through that. And additionally, we're using networks of trusted health officials, trusted visitors um, to help other people who might have challenges with that.
0: And then in the few seconds that we have left, what kind of
2: response are you getting now that the system's been out for a few days? So in a pretty glum time of Colorado COVID news, we are super excited to see that this has been hugely successful. Um, Just in the few days of launch since Sunday, more than half a million Coloradans have enabled the service. That's just about 10% of Colorado's total population and 15% of those people people in Colorado with smartphones.
1: Sarah, we're going to have to wrap up there,
2: but I want to thank
0: you so much for joining us. Sarah Thunberg is CDPHE's lead of Colorado's containment and testing team. (laughs) This week, we're bringing you the stories of new U.S. citizens who are voting for the first time. Melva Herrera lives in Alamosa, Colorado. She became a citizen just last month, but she's been in the U.S. since she was a baby
1: my parents were married in mexico and soon after they had me my dad came to united states with his brother to kind of look for work and better opportunities and you know being far away and separated my grandma my mom's mom was like hey you know this child can't grow up without knowing her father and You know, my dad and my mom missed each other, so she packed up her stuff, and she came along with me and one of her younger sisters. And so then we kind of just settled in Santa Ana, California, in the beginning, and eventually I went to school in Orange County, in Lake Forest, Laguna Hills area. Um, And do you mind sharing if you
0: and your parents were documented when you came to the United States?
1: Uh, We were not actually, my parents are still in the process of getting their citizenship. Due to laws and such, they weren't able to actually apply for any sort of visas. And me being kind of unaware, just growing up, going to high school, and kind of it wasn't afterwards till it hit me that like, oh, I'm undocumented. I don't have the abilities to kind of just go off to college and ask for financial aid. And so it wasn't until afterwards that I kind of just struggled a little bit to kind of find my footing and from what I knew to what reality is, I guess.
0: And do you remember how old you were the first time you realized that that was kind of a big deal?
1: Um, I think it was my senior year. I mean, I always knew as a child that they would always kind of yell out, watch out for ICE, but I never really understood what that was. And until it was senior year, people are applying for colleges and student loans. And, you know, I hear I am asking my parents, like, where's my social security card? And they're like, you don't have one. You know, this is the situation. This is what it's been. And there just hasn't been any lost opportunities in terms of like in a pathway for citizenship how did that change what you did after high school? You know, instead of looking to go to even a community college, I just went the route of trying to find somewhere I could work. So I did that for a number of years, just kind of working and kind of just not being able to grow within that company because I didn't have any sort of visa or citizenship. So it was a little frustrating and I'd get a little depressed from time to time telling my husband, like, there's no room for growth in me in terms of this document uh, missing in my life. So it would definitely help me back.
0: Yeah, it can be really hard to get a pathway to citizenship if you come undocumented as a child, especially. Tell me about your journey to citizenship.
1: So my husband and I got married back in November 2011. And, you know, we were fine. And then, kind of 2013 I believe it was where these new laws were coming into place and you know we were like let's get this going like I can't keep living without any kind of citizenship around here um so we kind of looked around for lawyers and there was one lawyer who told us to go th- this route of like um uh, for battered women. And I was like, no, I'm not putting my husband through this kind of staining his record of abusing his wife because that is just not true. Uh, so we just kind of did our paperwork on our own and it was a challenge, it was a struggle, but it made our marriage much stronger, just kind of relying on one of each other. And it the process did take us like a long time Compared to if you would have hired a lawyer, maybe a year, six months, something like that, people would would get their visas and such. But because we did it on our own, it definitely took years before I was able to um, get any sort of visa. And I got that in 2017 in January. So as President Trump was being inaugurated into office, I was... Um, in Ciudad Juarez, waiting to hear if I got accepted for my visa. So that was a little scary, being uh, out there on the other side of the border, the unknown,
0: whether I can come back or not. So you went back to Mexico to apply for the visa?
1: Yes, uh, that is the only way, as far as what we understood, that was the only way we could do it, is we had to go back and apply. And hopefully they accepted us, which they did. Um, Luckily, but yeah, you got to go back there and kind of present
0: yourself. And what kind of visa was it that you got at that point?
1: Uh, It was a permanent resident card. And so from there, it's a minimum of three years to wait. And then you can apply for the citizenship, which is what I did.
0: When you were in Ciudad Juarez, was that the first time you'd been back since you were
1: a baby? Yes. And... Based on just kind of like the news that my parents would watch uh, through their Spanish networks, you know, it it was, they put fear (laughs) in my head. And so it was, um, I went out there with this like terrifying thought, but Ciudad Juarez was a really nice place. We stayed at an Airbnb and the host was just amazing. She was wonderful. She was super helpful. And so it kind of made things less scary while being out there. But yeah, that was my first time going back since I was a baby. Um, But now, yeah, I mean, I'm able to go back and see my cousins. And unfortunately, though, my grandparents have long passed. And so that's a little upsetting, especially for my mom. But it's exciting to be able to go back and kind of learned some of that stuff that I missed out on, some of that family history. Yeah, and I'm sorry about your grandparents.
0: How much did being able to vote in November's election play a decision into deciding to become a citizen now?
1: It kind of just worked out that way. Where So when President Trump came into office, I was getting my visa. Three years later, I'm applying for the citizenship, and it took longer due to COVID-19. And so it kind of just worked out that way. So that come November, I will be able to vote, and it'll be my first time. And so I feel like it's very an important time in American history for someone to be able to vote. I'm so glad it worked out this way. Tell me about the issues that are driving your vote. It's always like I grew up in a separate community from those who were citizens, and now just being able to participate in voting is like a huge deal to me. Um, But uh, here in Colorado, you know, we want to make sure that everything is to the standards that are needed to kind of fight this COVID-19 back. And so in general, I feel like the country could be in a way better place had we just had some proper leadership, in my opinion, just because I learned so much with regards to COVID-19 because I did a summer internship with AmeriCorps. What was your internship? It was uh, contact tracing, actually.
0: And do you mind sharing who you'll vote for?
1: I will be voting for Joe Biden and Ms. Kamala Harris. Um, and
0: you said but when you were younger, you felt like you grew up in a different community than people who are citizens. Tell me what that means to you.
1: So what that means is there's always limitations in terms of like success, like the type of cars we could buy, the type of place we could live in. For example, all my life, I lived in apartments just because we didn't have the means or the documentation to be able to purchase a home. We were always living with other people who weren't documented. And so, you know, we helped each other out. It was a very tight community because uh, most of my family on both sides of my parents is back in Mexico. A lot of the uh, people in the community that I grew up with, I see them as my aunts and uncles and cousins. And um, so right now that's my goal is to get that house is to have that American dream, as everyone says, is get that nice car and that job and and just be happy.
0: Um, I wonder when you talk about immigration or becoming a citizen with other people who have become citizens or who are in that process. What experiences do you share? Or Like what questions do you have for each other?
1: Um, they'll ask like you know, what lawyer did you see? What lawyer did you get? And when we tell them that we did it on our own, they're very shocked because most of the time people scrounge up money and get into debt and to pay for these lawyers. And the one place that we were able to have some sort of guidance from was the Catholic Charities in Los Angeles. Um, And so that's sometimes who I refer to they helped just kind of get our paperwork started, and then we kind of took off from there.
0: How much money do you think you saved by doing it on your own? Uh,
1: I have no idea. I don't yeah. even know. <laughs> Each form is like a couple hundred bucks, and then you gotta mail it. And so I don't. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And then moving out here to Colorado, when we had a um, one of the processes, they have to do your fingerprints or the biometrics. And living in Alamosa, everything is in Denver, so we have to kind of travel out there. So just that expense alone, you know, having to travel to get certain things done, you know, it adds up. So I don't know how much we've spent in all, but it worked out.
0: What do you wish that people understood better about the process of trying to get citizenship after being brought to the United States as a child who was undocumented?
1: I would just let people know to just kind of be uh, a little bit more understanding when it comes to meeting someone who's undocumented and just hear out their story because it's most likely not what you think it is. Um, You know, people always say, you know, you got to do it the right way, you got to go back and you got to apply properly. But it's like, this is, you know, this is all I've ever known. If I were to go back and because you always hear about people being punished and having to stay there for X amount of years and then they apply and then they still get rejected. That was always a fear of mine. And it's like, I didn't, I didn't want to live in Mexico. I wanted to be here with my mom and my dad. And people would say, well, why didn't you all go back? And it's just like, well, they eventually had children here in the United States. I have my younger sister and my little brother and what about them? You know, is it fair to them to take him out of their home country because my parents and myself aren't from here? And the funny thing is, is when people would ask me, like, well, you're married now to a citizen, like, shouldn't you just be a citizen? And people just have no idea that the laws in terms of immigration are just, they're very challenging. And even at the ceremony, kind of one of the words that stuck out to me, it's like they found us eligible to be here in this country. And I was like, wow, I'm one of those people who are eligible, who are being allowed to be here and to live here and to have these rights. So that word kind of stuck out to me, like I'm eligible. Whereas like I've been here all my life.
0: Melva Herrera lives in Alamosa, Colorado. Her parents brought her to the United States from Mexico when she was nine months old. She's 31 now, and last month she took the Oath of Allegiance at the Colorado National Monument in Mesa County. You can see photographs of the ceremony by CPR's Hart Vandenberg at CPR.org. When we come back, the role Healthcare and Affordable Care Act is playing in the US Senate race in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
2: Marijuana has long found its way into the hands and minds of
3: creative people. Smoking definitely brings the emotional intensity where you don't overthink it.
2: But what is the connection between creativity and cannabis? Most people who smoke pot get less creative. To find out, we talked to members of the band's Chicano Batman, Tank and the Bangas, a chef and a neurologist on the latest episode of On Something. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or
0: wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Lots of voters have health care on their minds these days, For one, it's a big election year. We're also living through a worldwide pandemic. And the Affordable Care Act will be front and center in the U.S. Supreme Court next month. We're going to look at how health care is played into the Colorado Senate race. The incumbent Republican Senator Cory Gardner wants to replace the ACA, but it's not clear what he'd want to replace it with. He said he'd keep protections for people with pre-existing conditions and use high-risk pools to reduce insurance costs.
1: The plan is to make sure that we empower citizens, empower constituents, and not empowering somebody like Chuck Schumer or Congress to be in charge of their health care.
0: Former Governor John Hickenlooper, Gardner's Democratic challenger, wants to keep the Affordable Care Act, which includes protections for pre-existing conditions and allows parents to keep kids on their insurance until they turn 26. He also suggests phasing in a public option.
3: I believe we have to build on the Affordable Care Act. I mean, that's what Barack Obama build as a foundation, and I think a sliding scale public option gets us a long way there.
0: Here to put all of this in context is Markian Haverluck. He's the reporter for Kaiser Health News and is based in Lakewood. Markian, welcome to the show.
4: Thanks for having me, Avery.
0: I understand when it comes to Colorado's Senate race, the discussion about health care and the Affordable Care Act has played out very differently this election year than it did when Senator Gardner won back in 2014. How is that?
4: Yeah. If you remember back six years ago, which obviously seems like decades ago, um, you know, the Affordable Care Act had been passed in in 2010, but it was just going into effect in 2014. Um, and it wasn't all that popular. There were there were a lot of hiccups along the way, um, and a lot of uh, Republican candidates uh, were swept in on this wave of anti-ACA sentiment. Uh, Cory Gardner was one of them. He he campaigned on a platform of let's let's repeal uh, the ACA, and and he got swept in on that. Of course, uh, once. Um, once that that class of, uh, of, of new congressmen was in place, they, they tried to repeal the ACA, but they just didn't have the votes to do it.
0: And how has Hickenlooper talked about the health care and the ACA in debates on the campaign trail this year?
4: Yeah, uh, Governor Hickenlooper has been a a big supporter of the ACA. I mean, he was governor when when it was implemented. He used the provisions of the ACA to expand Medicaid in Colorado and to set up an exchange where people could go and buy health insurance with uh, federal subsidies. Um, And he has uh, wanted to build on the ACA, kind of fix the problems that we've had with it, and see if we can get to some sort of uh, more universal coverage where everybody would have access to health insurance uh, by building on the strengths of the ACA and fixing its shortcomings.
0: So let's talk about those key shortcomings. Sure. What are those that in the ACA that concern Republicans like Gardner and some Democrats who say that it needs key fixes?
4: Yeah, I mean the, the the big issue, the biggest issue I think with the ACA is that there there was only so much money to go around, and so they put subsidies uh, towards uh, affordability for people with the lower incomes. And there's a certain segment of of the population that makes too much money to afford a subsidy or to get a subsidy, but still can't afford. Healthcare insurance—it's really still expensive. It's a big chunk of their of their take home pay, um, and that's that's been you know sort of the biggest shortcoming. But there are other things. I mean, one of the things that the Republicans have never liked is the individual mandate, where uh, the ACA said you have to buy health insurance or you're going to pay this penalty. And Republicans always felt, well, you know, we we shouldn't be forcing people to buy insurance if they don't want to. We should rely more on a free market where you know competition and and pricing uh, helps, you know, to bring uh, the cost of insurance low and make it affordable for everybody.
0: Now, at the same time, polls show that the ACA has become more popular in the last few years. One key reason is the rule that you can't be denied health coverage if you have pre-existing conditions. How did it work before those who who had pre-existing conditions, before the ACA?
4: Yeah, it didn't work very well, Avery. Um, before the ACA, if you were buying health insurance by yourself, meaning you weren't getting it through your job or, or a government plan like Medicare or Medicaid, um, insurance companies had a lot of leeway to just deny you coverage. They could, you know, they would go through your medical history and say, well, you know what, you, you've you had some heart problems. We don't want to sell you insurance. Or they could uh, they could charge you a lot more money depending on what your health history was. Um, and, and the ACA put a stop there. The ACA said, hey, you know what? You've got to uh, give everybody a right to buy insurance. You can't uh, deny people for certain pre-existing conditions that they have, uh, nor can you um, charge them an arm and a leg when they do have it. Put some limits on how much insurance companies could charge for premiums. Um, That had twofold effect. On one hand, we really increased the number of people who were able to afford insurance and able to qualify for insurance and buy insurance on the individual market. What it also did was that it raised the price of insurance because now insurance companies weren't just covering a group of healthy people; they were covering covering a group of healthy and sick people. So you can imagine the average cost for all those people would go up, and that's exactly what happened with the ACA. And this, particularly in early years, where insurance companies kind of weren't really sure who was going to buy insurance, how it was going to how it was it going to work, uh, they sort of overcompensated, and premiums went up a hell of a lot, and over time insurance companies learn to deal with it better States put in uh, other provisions to help them to help protect insurance companies against the really really high cost patients uh, and, and we've seen that sort of market stabilize where uh, prices have leveled off or even in Colorado's case have gone down
0: now Republicans like Gardner have said that people with pre-existing conditions would still be
4: able to get coverage even if the ACA goes away
0: what does gardner propose
4: yeah so senator gardner has uh, has issued a bill um it's a short bill you know just a little over 100 words long that basically says insurance companies can't discriminate uh, against people on the basis of pre-existing conditions um, and that's you know it, that's a great statement. I think everybody would agree with that. Uh, but in practicality, that bill might not do what Senator Gardner uh, thinks that it will do, or is claiming that it will do. Um, if you talk to healthcare policy experts, they say you know the the reason the ACA is so good at protecting against preexisting conditions is a number of other. Uh, uh, uh categories that, um, that that will protect people with. So for example, um, the, under the ACA there's something called guarantee issue You have the right you have the right to buy insurance an insurance company can't turn you down for any reason. It, if um, the prote- the protections for pre-existing condition goes away if the ACA is overturned, an insurance company could just deny to sell you a, a policy altogether. Similarly, the ACA provides subsidies for people. So imagine you have a pre-existing condition. The insurance company has to cover that, but you can't afford it. So how much of a protection is that? So the ACA is more of sort of a package of policies that help protect people uh, with pre-existing conditions and make sure that they can still uh, qualify for health insurance.
0: Now, the ACA has had a number of challenges in the U.S. Supreme Court, including one next month. What will the latest challenge entail?
4: yeah it's an interesting case. and um, basically, if you'll remember back a few years back uh, when the ACA was passed, the Supreme Court uh, was asked to take a look at whether the individual mandate that everybody has to buy insurance is constitutional. and uh, the Supreme Court maybe did some you know kind of gymnastics and 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 Chief Justice Roberts uh, famously said, you know, it's not really an individual mandate. The government isn't forcing you to buy insurance because you have the right to to say no and pay a penalty instead. So it works a lot more like a tax. Uh, but then, in the, you know, in the meantime, you know, Republicans tried to overturn the ACA. They couldn't do it, but they did succeed in eliminating that tax penalty. And so, some enterprising attorney generals in some of the red states across the country said, "Well, hey, you know, if." There's no penalty. If there's no tax penalty uh, for not having insurance, then this really isn't a tax. It's just the government forcing you to buy insurance. And a lot of people kind of look at that, you know, from a legal perspective saying, oh, that's, you know, that's kind of a silly argument. Uh, but it's made its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court gonna, is going to have to issue some sort of uh, decision on this. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of options. They could, they could agree, like, this is silly and just discard the whole lawsuit. Um, they could uh, reject it on, on uh, the issue of standing, that these uh, attorney generals really aren't affected by, uh, by the mandate. And so they, they don't really have the standing to bring a case to the Supreme Court. They could overturn the entire ACA. And then, um, you know, depending on how they decide to do that, that could take effect immediately, could be delayed until January 1 of the next year. Or they could sort of try to split the baby and say, well, the individual mandate isn't constitutional, so we'll strike that part down, but leave the rest of the ACA in place.
0: A lot to keep our eyes on. Well, Markian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Avery. Markian Haraluk is a reporter for Kaiser Health News and is based in Lakewood. We've been talking about how voters' views on health care could affect results of the Colorado Senate race and what that might mean for the U.S. healthcare care policy in the future. For folks thinking about moving to Denver, a new horror anthology has a message for them turn back now. That's how the book opens. It then proceeds to warn all interested parties that Colorado is full of monsters in the mountains and haunted burial grounds. The anthology Terror at 5280 came out earlier this year from the writer's group Denver Horror Collective. It features more than 20 short stories set in Colorado written by local authors. Author Josh Schlossberg is a founding member of the Denver Horror Collective. Josh, welcome to to the show.
3: I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for having me. We're going to listen to one of these
0: short stories in just a bit. But first, I couldn't help but notice that some of the language in that preface comes across as a little anti-transplant. Is Diver Horror Collective trying to scare away potential newcomers?
3: We may or may not be trying to do that. Now, many of us are transplants ourselves. And basically, if you want to be in Colorado and you really love the place, you get to come here. But I guess we do want to scare away some people. (laughs)
0: lots of colorado lore in this anthology as well as recognizable locations there are allusions to rocky flats lakeside amusement park makes a couple of appearances what do you think it is about colorado that makes it a great setting for horror stories
3: Well, the author of the foreword, John Palazzano, he's president of Horror Writers Association. He suspects that there's literally something in the ground. So it's something in the minerals and the rocks that brings maybe odd people here to write odd stories. But I think it has to do with the fact that we have Denver that is a real city with real city things going on. And then we have the wild wilderness nearby. And I think the juxtaposition of the two things... I don't know. It, it creates some sort of dynamic. That's yeah. all I know. There's
0: a lot of elements that you can bring together. I want to talk about some of the Colorado lore that we mentioned. Some story. There is one story by a renowned local author, Carter Wilson. It focuses on an old vampire legend at the Lafayette Cemetery. But then you've got stories like Gary Robbie's Scrape. It's about, without spoiling it, I'd love for you to talk about that
3: one. Sure. Scrape is basically a haunted house story, but it's about gentrification in Denver. So the concept of scraping is when you take some of these beautiful old homes and you literally evaporate them to build an ugly box. And in this case, something lingers after that fact. So it's kind of a way of having a bit of social commentary without shoving it down people's throats.
0: And do you think that horror can play an effective role in shedding light on social issues?
3: I think it can, but it needs to be done with a light touch. I think readers can sniff out preachiness, So if you come into writing a story, this is the message I want to get across and people are going to listen to me. It's probably not going to come across as well. The key is really having that story. It's got to be driven by the story. It's got to be driven by the characters. And then if you have worthwhile things to say, sure, that will likely get across to people even better that way.
0: Well, let's talk about your story in the anthology, Chronic Cold, which also has some real world Colorado
3: ties, right? It does indeed. It's about a particularly snowy winter in Denver that sends some strange creatures down from the mountains, and it ties into a a real-world issue. I write a lot about science and disease, and I don't want to give things away, but it is based on a real-life occurrence. But funny enough, I actually ran into another one of our mountain creatures just a couple days ago on my hike. I ran into a very large bear, so it's a good reminder that Horror is all around us. Although I don't think the bear really cared very much about me, so we do tend to we tend to exaggerate what the creatures want to do to us. But in my story, they're a lot worse than they are in real life.
0: Well, I'm glad that you made it back safely from being in the mountains. It's time for us to hear one of these stories. Halloween weekend is this weekend, after all. Award-winning horror writer Stephen Graham Jones contributed a story called This Was Always Going to Happen. This reading is from the anthology's audiobook, which comes out Saturday.
5: Let's settle in. There's no traffic out this far, so the only real danger when the tire on your trusty accord blows is that you might panic, wrench the wheel over, plummet a few hundred feet down. You don't. Instead, you slow, ease over to the shoulder, then scooch a little closer to the guardrail, as close as you can get, since there's a blind turn up ahead that Porsches with ski racks can come whipping around. If they have to overcorrect from that hairpin situation, it might point them right where you're sitting. No thank you, mountain gods. Really, you consider it lucky that the rear tire went when it did. Ten, twenty seconds later and you'd be changing it in the cool shade of those giant red rocks, and every car coming down the mountain would only be seeing you at the last possible instant. But then, luck? Real luck would have been the tire not blowing at all. Anyway, you call Marcy because that's the safe thing to do. But of course, cell service being spotty all up and down this road, you can't get through. The faster you swap the flat for the donut in the trunk, the faster you can tell her about all this in person, you figure. It's not like you haven't changed a tire before. So, five minutes later, the back of the Accords hiked up on a scissor jack. You're just cranking on the first lug when a slow crunch turns you around. It's a cyclist in full bib tights, bright white with orange and yellow stripes and accents, one of those helmets made to reduce wind drag, his legs hairless because smooth skin slips through the air that much faster. He's doing the balancing on the pedals thing they all do, like the ground's lava, and if they just make it two more seconds, they'll be safe. His mirrored sunglasses are nearly ski goggles. "'What is it?' he asks, more chipper than anybody should be after the climb he had just had to have made. "'Flat,' you tell him, kind of obviously. He pauses, like rolling through response options, then says, "'You got it, then?' "'Old hand at this,' you say, the lug wrench loose by your thigh. "'Well, if you need anything,' he says and nods bye or good luck or it's hard to tell, actually. He pedals off, continuing his classic ride or Sunday afternoon burn or whatever it is he's crazy enough to be out here doing. More power to him. You're rolling the spare around from the trunk when a flash up at the jumble of red rocks catches your attention. It's the cyclist coming back, whipping in and out of the yellow stripes on a faded asphalt. He pulls to a soundless stop, feet down in the lava this time and works what he's found down off his shoulder, along his arm. A cast-off air filter. It's accordion paper packed with seed heads and dirt. Thought this might help, he says, and sets it by the flat tire. You consider it. Come up to the cyclist again. Consider him all over again. Is this what counts for humor at 8,000 feet? Okay, you say. He throws a jaunty salute your way, flashes a perfectly symmetrical grin, his leathery cheeks crinkling up from it, and pedals easily away. This time, you watch him until he disappears around the red rocks. You don't get it. Not even one little bit. In an effort to, you inspect the air filter, but it doesn't hold any answers, was completely content with its life in the ditch before being hand-delivered back to you. Marcy is going to love hearing about this one. You're on your stomach your arm shoved as far under the accord as it can go after a gotten-away lug nut, when you realize you're not alone. Again. You roll to the side to see two high-dollar road bike wheels, tires that are weighed in grams. Found this, the cyclist says, grinning wider and eager. It's a two-gallon gas can, its plastic body faded from a season in the sun. I have a flat, you can't help but reiterate, watching his mirrored lenses for a sign of of anything, please, any sort of clue. Just thought you might need it, the cyclist says, and sets it down on the shoulder of the road, like the most delicate vase, the most sacred artifact. Thank you, you say. He nods sagely, almost reverently, and hauls his bike around, pedals uphill. You study the road behind you this time. There's no one to witness this, whatever it is. You're alone out here. With this crazy person, you edge over to the gas can, tow it over onto its side. It's empty, light, probably brittle. After checking the road both ways, you step out into it, take a running start, and kick the gas can with everything you've got. It sails over the guardrails, hangs like a cartoon for a moment, then drops. You've got to get off this mountain. You spin the three lug nuts you do have onto the studs and walk around to the other side of the accord, the long fall past the guardrail taking your breath away a bit. Don't look, you tell yourself while completely looking. Your prayer was that the lost lug nut had rolled this far, that it would be there waiting for you. Nope. With your luck, it's probably dead center under the car, right under the muffler, which wants nothing else in this world but to sizzle into the skin of your forearm. You could tighten down the three lug nuts you didn't fumble away and roll the accord back, expose their missing brother. But what if one of the studs carrying its weight plus a third snaps off, and then you're stuck up here? No, better a burn on your forearm than having to walk down for enough bars to call for help. When you come around the car to get that lug nut, damn the consequences, the cyclist is playing his balancing game again turning the front wheel of his bike this way and that, pedaling forward degree by degree. He looks up like he's surprised to see you. Oh, hey, he says. Found this, thought... It's a bezel. Thin, aluminum, all twisted up and dull. In a former life, it probably framed a taillight. In its current life, it's just trash. Um, you say. Yeah. Got to look out for each other up here, right? he says, or recites. Thank you, you say, sort of chilled even though it's hot. He shrugs like it's nothing, like pleased with himself. That's it. It's like he's a dog, isn't it? And dogs don't understand flats or cars. They just know to bring you stuff. It means they get petted. He nods, accepting your verbal pat, checks the road both ways, and hauls his bike around, stands on the pedals to make this climb a third time. Marcia is going to flip for this, and you really need that fourth lug. You lie down, reinvigorated, can see the dull glint of the lug nut now, can just touch it with the leading top of your middle finger, and then, your eyes pressed tight now so your fingers can feel better, a thing happens. The cool lug nut is placed on the back of your straining hand and then held there until your forearm figures out how to rotate in that tight space, let your palm accept this gift. Except, you reel your arm in, open your eyes, have to look. It's the cyclist, shimmied under the car from the passenger side, the muffler smoking against his cheek but not messing with his grin one iota, his mirrored lenses absolutely unreadable. You jerk back, dropping the lug nut, and roll fast away, stand. What are you, even? You bellow, having to back up to try and keep a line on him under the car, which is when a horn blows and tires scream and you realize you're standing in the middle of the road. At least for about a hundredth of a second longer.
0: The short story, This Was Always Going to Happen, by Stephen Graham Jones. Josh Schlossberg of Denver Horror Collective leave us with a few words reflecting on that story.
3: Well, we all know that the mountains are creepy. And for some reason, being out on these high elevation mountain roads, it does things to your mind. At least it does things to my mind. So it might be some form of elevation sickness, the thin air, or it might just be that things are a little bit different up there. And I think that's really central to what's going on in Terra 5280, what's going on locally here. We're, we're up high. Maybe we don't have enough oxygen. So maybe we're actually living through some sort of prism that we're seeing things that don't really exist. Or maybe we're seeing things as they really exist. But that's just a theory.
0: <laughs> maybe there's something in the soil. Maybe there's something in the air. I have to wonder, when you're thinking about horror, how do you think about what you leave out of a story. It seems like so much of this is just your imagination. We don't get the full ending here. We just have to imagine what happens.
3: Yeah, well, there's this concept called the monster's tail. So it's a lot scarier to tell a story where you just see that dangling cord-like monster's tail, rather than, oh, okay, the monster's standing in front of me and I'm going to describe all the details. Because at that point, It's it's the climax and then it's over. So you want things to linger. You want to tease out the details. And it's the things that we don't see that are scariest. That's the whole concept of the shadow. We don't see what's inside of ourselves unless we try really, really hard to look. And sometimes we don't like what we see, which is why we don't always look very hard.
0: The monster's tail. I love that. Well, Josh, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Uh, Thanks so much for having me
0: author Josh Schlossberg is part of the Denver Horror Collective. The group published their anthology Terror at 5280 earlier this year. They have an audiobook version out on Halloween. That's it for Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. Thanks for joining us. You can get Colorado Matters anytime on demand. Just ask your smart speaker to play the podcast Colorado Matters.